opened your bulletin, you saw an insert. There is a shower for the House of Hope next week. Not next week, two weeks. The 29th, the date was, uh, is the 29th, 2-9. So wanted to point that out to you. If you have your Bible, uh, we're going to continue on in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, very beginning of the Bible. We're going to read uh, the rest of of Genesis 1 and into the first couple verses of Genesis chapter 2. And then we'll flip and read a singular verse from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 3. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 20, the story continues. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of sea and every living thing which the, with which the waters teem and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase in the earth. And there was evening. And there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kind, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image, and in the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. This will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath, the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And so it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day. And made it holy, because on it, God rested from all the work of creating that God had done. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. I've got a lot to tell you today, um, but it's been an intense week for my family, and I just feel emotionally raw getting into the pulpit. I think, you know, my grandmother's in ICU. I've been with her the last couple of days. Uh, so will you pray for me? Uh, just that I would have the strength and courage 
uh, in the book of Daniel to preach God's word in its fullness and uh, that we might all collectively, me included, experience the comfort, this challenge, um, and this encouragement. Uh, would you let's pray? Recently, there was a group of secular scientists who challenged God to a contest. God, they said, uh, we have discovered how to make human beings exactly like you made them in Genesis. We can now create life just as you did in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We figured it out, and we want to have a contest to see who can make the best human being. God said, oh, really? So you have some improvements in mind, do you? Yeah, we're going to get rid of the appendix and we're going to add a tail. Like that, that would be convenient, to add a tail. God said, of course, of course. Um, I accept your challenge. And so they spread out. The scientists hurry over to a new spot. And they begin. They get ready to start. And they say, go. And they start sweeping up dust from the ground, out of which they're going to make their tail. And God stops them and says, wait, 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 wait. In the beginning, God. It's a cute story. It's a cute joke. But it reminds us of an ancient Christian doctrine, uh, which is called creation ex nihilo. If you're taking notes, that's E-X space N-I-H-I-L-I-O. Creation ex nihilo. Or it means creation out of nothing. Creation out of nothing. Simply put, the God of the Bible, before the God of the Bible creates anything there is nothing no matter no mass no light no time no space no particles no primordial ooze no atoms no uh, quarks or subatomic particles and i don't think that our friends my my very smart friends much smarter than me uh, but secular secularists and atheists uh, don't generally wrestle with this enough Instead, they generally choose to presuppose matter, or at least to presuppose the laws of physics. Uh, recently, a dude named uh, Stephen Hawking, very famous scientist, uh, wrote an entire book arguing that the universe could and would create itself just based on the laws of physics. The problem is you have to ask them, where then did the laws of physics come from? Like, are the, like those, where did those come from? You just tried to create creation out of nothing except for you got rid of the nothing part. To get creation out of nothing, which now we almost all uh, believe that there was a time when the universe was not, that the creation had, that all of uh, the universe has a starting point. Uh, both secular and Christian scientists believe this. Uh, but we, uh, you have to have something to start it. And the God of the Bible creates out of nothing. Such immense power and wonder displayed in force. 
What's fascinating is, uh, I didn't actually read it to you, uh, so let's turn there to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Hebrews is towards the end of the Bible. It's a long sermon that's been recorded for us, written down. And verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command, so that what is seen was made, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible, or what was visible. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. What's fascinating is that uh, the, the word there that's translated the universe is actually uh, the Greek word for uh, eon, uh, which is both, it's a word that has both um, space and time dimensions, if you'll let me uh, use the pun, the clever one. Uh, it has space and time built into it, uh, which hints at an idea that human beings would later discover this in- intricate relationship between space and time and between matter and energy is already hinted at here in this word eon in Hebrews 11.3. But in the United States and in Europe for the last several hundred years, you cannot talk about creation, you cannot talk about uh, God creating the universe without immediately falling into a debate, without starting the conversation in a debate of how questions. We are currently obsessed with questions like how did God create the world? Or, if there, or uh, how was it all made if there is no God? How did the universe come to be? How long did it take? What was the driving force of the whole thing? Unfortunately for us, these are not the most important questions. They are simply the ones most often asked. The most more important questions are why was it created? Why is there something instead of nothing? What are human beings and the rest of creation for? Why do they exist? What is their purpose? These are the questions we would ask of any other machine that was given to us. If Keely came to my house and gave me a clock, and I'd never seen one before, my first question is not, how did you make it and how much time did you take, but what is it and what does it do? What is it for? Why are you giving this thing to me? Maybe later I would ask the how question, and she would teach me. The problem is, why questions which are the far more important questions, are are questions that science cannot answer. They're the the questions that science cannot answer except to say it was created from nothing. If there is no creator, then there is no purpose. The question is a non-starter. It doesn't have an answer. The answer is nothing. There is no point. There is no why. But we can't avoid the how questions in this time and space, in this day and age. And so what I'm going to do this morning is something very dangerous, and I've wrestled with it uh, all week long, but ultimately decided uh, that I was going to do it and give it to you, uh, is I'm going to admit to you that thoughtful, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, heaven-bound Christians disagree over how God created the world. Yeah, that's right. Christians... Christian saints currently believe a whole range of things about how God created the universe. But Christians all agree on the who and the why. Again, Christians disagree on the how, but all Christians have always agreed on the who created, that God created, and the why God created, which is to glorify God's Son. As we move this direction, as I tell you the the different things that Christians believe, I'll tell you that, if I'm honest, I'm not sure exactly what I believe about the how. 
And the more I researched it, the more I realized I needed to research deeper and deeper. That I've thought about this a lot, and yet I have not thought about it enough. That all of us need the intellectual um, integrity to wrestle deep before we express certainty. I believe that this is probably an unknowable answer to a secondary question, and so it has not occupied a ton of my thought space, but still a lot. For ease's sake, I'm going to summarize just three different things that Bible-believing Christians, three different ways that Bible-believing Christians understand Genesis 1 and 2, which we just read most all of Genesis 1. Uh, We did not get into Genesis 2 uh, very much at all. And I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but to give you a brief summary and let you research and make an informed decision on your own. Because God wants you to use your brain and research and read and think and act and reason. The first option, the first thing that uh, Bible-believing Christians uh, who love Jesus and want God to be glorified uh, believe, this is one group of people, it's actually one giant group with subgroups in it, is what we might call young earth creation or young earth creationists. This view says that the earth is roughly 6,000 years old and that the Lord created all that is in six historic 24-hour days. It reads Genesis 1 and 2 as precise history. Young Earth scientists don't ignore the scientific data as they're often um, kind of caricatured. They're not ignoring scientific data, such as fossil records or the earth, later, earth layers or carbon dating or the strata of the earth. Instead, uh, they would point to the cataclysmic destruction of the Noahic flood, that is the flood during Noah's time, which if, there, if it were what the Bible describes it as, which is a year-long worldwide event that wiped out every living creature on the planet except those pre-saved uh, in the ark, uh, then it would, it, it, would, it would radically rearrange the earth's surface and strata it would rearrange pre-existing fossils while depositing new fossils and the mass extinction that occurred. Uh, one fella, a, a man named Dr. Terry Mortensen, writes this. He says, global, the global evidence of sedimentary rock layers filled with land and marine fossils is exactly the kind of evidence we would expect from Noah's flood. If most of the rock record is evidence of the flood, then there really is no geological evidence for millions of years of existence. You still might say, uh, but you you still might ask, uh, why does the earth appear so old then? Why does carbon dating and those kinds of things uh, make it look like the earth is so old, if the earth is only 6,000 years? To which the young earth uh, believer would respond, how old was Adam the day God created? say 25 or 30, to which they would say, nope, he's probably an hour, hour and a half old. He looks 25 or 30, but he's only been alive for an hour or two. He was created mature. And so if God, if God did, just as God did not create an infant, so too God created a mature universe. Or at least God could have. Personally, when I heard that argument and I realized the unanswerability of the question, because philosophically and logically, that is possible. There is not a fallacy in that. But there's no way to prove that or to test that. <laughs> Any more than you could like look at Adam. 
and say, uh, how old are you? You know, I don't know which birthday Adam celebrates. <laughs> how do you do that? Um, well, let's move on to the second group of Christians. The second group of people is what we might call old earth creationists, old earth creationists. Old earth believers accept that the world is much, much, much older than 60 or 6,000 years old. That the earth is, um, is billions, not the earth, but that the universe is, is ancient. It's billions of years old. But they still hold to a pretty straightforward understanding of Genesis 1 and 2. You say, how can they do that? Well, the word day in uh, Genesis 1, in Genesis 1 specifically, that word day, um, there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. Uh, that word day uh, can also be in, interpreted to represent a, an era or some other kind of longer period of time. Some people call this position the day-age position or the day-age theory. That is, each day in creation in Genesis 1 signifies an epoch of time. Uh, the, world, the word day is used this way elsewhere in the Bible. And we even use it this day, uh, when we even use the word day this way when we say things like, quote, back in my day, or back in the day. We don't mean a specific day, we mean a period of time that has indefinite beginnings and ends. That we all know what we're talking about. The Bible could be doing that. Um, in fact, First uh, Peter says that a thousand years are like a day to the Lord. Moreover, they'll point out the sun is not created until day four. And so how do you measure a day without the astrological mechanics of sun and earth? Good question. These scientists and Christians do believe that God supernaturally created the universe out of nothing, and they would say that the Big Bang cosmology provides powerful scientific support for this biblical uh, position. They believe that God supernaturally intervened over the course of six long periods of time to create the various plant and animal life forms, which the Genesis uses the word time. You probably saw that when it says the birds according to their kinds, the, man, the, the fish according to their kinds, the plants and trees according to their kinds. These believers generally reject Darwinian macroevolution but allow for microevolution within species may mean nothing to you. It may mean everything to you. The third group of people who love Jesus and love the Bible have decided after a lot of Bible study, after a lot of wrestling with the scripture, after studying and studying and, and reading and writing and just studying it, uh, that the Genesis 1 and 2 are poetic rather than historical. And so it communicates truths about God and creation in artistic and figurative ways. So instead of studying Genesis 1 for cosmological truths, they focus on the theological and the anthropological truths that are expressed clearly, that are undeniable uh, in this story. In fact, when you read it the first time, those are the things that jump out of you, especially in Genesis 2, is that this is um, giving me theological and anthropological uh, data. Thus, these groups of Christians and, uh, and some of them, many of them scientists, uh, feel no need to account for the historical days or time periods in Genesis 1. And so uh, some of them call themselves uh, evolutionary creationists or theistic evolutionists, theistic evolutionists, uh, because Darwinian evolution is um, atheistic evolution. 
Now, but you've proved, but there are people who believe in theistic evolution, i.e., they believe that life evolved at God's command and under God's sovereign guidance, not by random chance or mutation, except by the hand of God. There are other theories. There's one called gap theory, which says that there's a long gap of history between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-1 says the Lord formed the earth and the heavens, and then it stops. The next thing we say is that the earth and the heavens were formed, were formless and void and empty. There are people who believe those are, but we can insert a few super tags in there. Earth, long time, God created that. But these accounts, what's fascinating about these accounts is that each of these accounts, that in each of these accounts, excuse me, we see faithful Christianity ultimately trying to wrestle with two things that they will not reject. Two things, and neither of which will they, will they lay down. The first thing, uh, the word of God that they, they won't just disregard. They won't just say, um, Genesis is not important. We're not going to wrestle with it. We're not going to deal with the accounts in the Bible. Uh, the second being nature itself. We see them holding with two hands the natural universe and the word of God. And sometimes we put these two things at odds with one another. Uh, sometimes uh, we believe we have been taught a myth that facts and faith are contrary to one another, are different kinds of things. Uh, but that epistemology just is not true. In fact, a very famous Christian scientist, you've probably heard of the dude, his name is Galileo. Uh, Galileo was a, a believer. And when he was tried for heresy and ultimately excommunicated uh, by the Roman Catholic Church for teaching uh, that the sun uh, was at the center of the galaxy and not the sun at the center of the solar system and not the earth, he made a theological argument. His argument, he said, how did God create the world according to the Bible? Well, God spoke it into existence. God didn't like say a plan and then do it with his hand. God said, let there be light, and the Bible says, there was. That the created world is God's spoken word. That all we see is God's word manifested in atoms and particles. That all of matter and time and space is God's word written in the ink of atoms and molecules of energy and matter. Likewise, Galileo says, the Bible is the word of God written in ink and paper. Both are God's word. They both have the same author, and so they must in fact, both agree. And he wrestled long and hard with this. And I think we, too, have to wrestle with both of those things. Because we are Christians, we believe in the, the usefulness of our brain. We believe that we are created rational creatures and that God wants us to think and explore and to ask questions. And so we cannot just dismiss all of the nature, all of science, but at the same time, we cannot dismiss the work of God either. We have to hold them and wrestle it out. The problem is, with all of what I just said to you, is that ultimately, I'm not sure it matters much to you, to us, to our daily lives. It matters for conversations and arguments in academic classrooms. I want your kids to know those things, that I, that that Christianity is thoroughly rational and thoughtful um, because those in positions of power at most of our academic institutions uh, do not believe that. They're a very small minority, uh, very small minority, not just in our country, but in the history of the world. 
And so I want them to know that. But the answer to how the world was created won't help us in that. And it certainly won't help the people in the book of Hebrews. Remember, we started with Hebrews 11, verse 3. We're reading and we're talking about creation because Hebrews verse uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is this incredible chapter on faith. And it starts out, the very first thing it says, it says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And then it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what it was visible. And you remember from our study of this that the reason he's talking so much about faith is that the people in uh, this letter is written to, this sermon is written to, are experiencing suffering and tremendous persecution. They've already been through suffering, and it looks like they're getting ready to walk into more. And so Hebrews wants them to hold fast to their faith, even when their worlds fall apart, even when they, they come apart. So he is telling them, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command to encourage them, to give them faith, to give them faith, to walk through suffering, to walk through trials, to walk through disappointment. He is terribly afraid that they are going to shrink back, that they are going to reject Christianity, that they are going to reject the gospel. And so he's going to tell them all these examples of faith. But verse 3 is unique in the sense that all the other examples in Hebrews 11 are about people who act faithfully even when they can't see the outcome. From here on out, it will always be about a person. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. So why not just start with people walking through suffering? Why would Hebrews start with God of all creation? Why would he remind them that this is the God of all creation? Why not just start with Adam or uh, or Abel or Enoch or Abraham? I think the whole Bible answers this over and over and over again. I only have time to point to uh, a bunch of different reasons. If I'm going to summarize them, I think I have five reasons, which are probably like 15 reasons, um, but I won't really dig into too many of them. But I know that you and I have been at that place, right, where you're wondering, does all of life have first thing we learn about that God, the universe was formed at God's command, the first thing we learn, the first encouragement we receive is, number one, life has a point. All of creation, all Christians believe that life has a point, that this created world matters, that your physical life matters, that it has eternal significance and weight. And so uh, your suffering matters. Your suffering matters. If there is no God and the universe came into existence by sheer chance, your suffering has a no point, no meaning, no purpose. It accomplishes nothing. It defines nothing. It adds to nothing. Because in the end, it's all going to die. All of it. Uh, a famous philosopher, Bertrand Russell, who was a famous atheist, uh, wrestled with this and let it wash over him. And these are what he said. This, is, this, is, this scares me beyond belief. 
because all the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole of the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in, re- in ruins. All of these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. He writes this, Only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can a life be safely built. If there is no God, this life has no point, we might as well despair. And friends, our world is suffering, is suffering a huge life crisis, an epidemic, a pandemic of despair. Do you realize we are now killing ourselves faster than disease can kill us? Disease is no longer the number one killer of human beings. We are, through addictions and suicide. We are overdosing and shooting ourselves at a rate faster than cancer can catch up. That scares me. That wakes me up in the middle of the night. I look at my wife and I say, what what are we going to do? First thing we remember that God formed the universe. Life has meaning. Life has purpose. It has a goal and a destination. Second, this reminds us of God's incredible power. This reminds us of God's incredible power as we survey the universe, as we think about the storms and the thunderclouds. In Isaiah uh, verse 40, in Isaiah verse 40, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, we see these incredible words. Isaiah 40, starting at verse 27, we see these words. It says, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, that my cause is disregarded from God? What we see in verse 27 is that same spirit of despair that Hebrews is is trying to fight back. It's that feeling that God's not paying attention to me, that God is ignoring me, that the world is so bad, either there is no God or God does not care, which is a lie that our generation has been taught to believe. But verse 28 says this, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heaven, of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Here, to a people, group of people who feel like God has abandoned them, who feel like their suffering is proof that God is far away, he reminds them that God made everything, that God does not grow tired or weary. On the seventh day, God did not uh, rest because he was tired and needed refreshment. He rested because he was delighted and wanted enjoyment. We remember God's power and might. God is not too helped to weep. 
God's throne is not in question. God is reigning over all of this. God is still in control. God is still on his throne. It's going to say in um, Isaiah 40, just before that, he's the one who calls the stars out by name. That's what he says in 26. He who brings the starry out host by host and calls them each forth by name. If you're wondering where that song that the song came from, that's Isaiah 40, verse 26. If God knows the stars' names, he knows your name. Like if God knows the stars' names, he knows your name. Jesus himself is going to say this later. He says, are not two sparrows sold in the market for a penny? And yet not a single sparrow falls at his side that the Lord does not know. Oh, little flock, don't you know you are worth many, many sparrows? You are worth so many sparrows. Don't you know God is in control. God has power over your life. I read this week the incredible fact that if if the ga- if our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the size of North America, if the Milky Way was the size of North America, then our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup, and the Earth would be a speck, barely visible in that coffee cup. And ours is one of hundreds of one of billions of galaxies that we know of, and it's pretty small. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4 says he upholds all of this by the power of his word for his understanding is unsearchable according to Isaiah 40 um, verse 28 and so this is the third thing we are encouraged by creation to remember the vastness of God's understanding I know I'm out of time the vastness of God's understanding have asked me how my grandmother is and I don't know the answer because God has made her body so complex that you don't know everything about a single human hair and yet God does God does things that we think are pointless God sees the point to them and the purpose to them the same is true of your suffering just because you cannot see just because you do not understand how this could be God's will does not mean it's not unless God is not smarter than you. And if you want to worship a God who is not smarter than you, feel free. But I want a God who's bigger than me. I want a God who can see all of the galaxies and yet calls me by name. I want a God who can see every thought in every human heart and yet chooses to love us. And the last thing, I'll stop with this. The last thing that this is here to encourage us is to remember that God's word has Power. Hebrews 11 verse 3 doesn't just say God created the heavens and the earth. It says, by faith, we come to understand that God created the universe by his command, by his word. Friends, the same word we read in Sunday, the same word I pour myself into all week to come to you with is the same word the universe heard when galaxies spun into place that everything draws its power from God's word, that you and I are not self-sustaining, that you and I are not self-sufficient. You see, it says, even youth grow tired and weary, even young men stumble and fall. 
You know why youths grow tired and weary and and young men stumble and fall? I think it's because they were meant to be selfish. You were never supposed to be self-sufficient. You were always supposed to be connected to the vine. You were always supposed to be plugged into the power source of the universe, which is God and God alone. You were always meant to know God and have him. Let's pray. God, all the hours and all the days and all of human history is not enough to invest in a single sentence in your book. Show us the unsearchable riches of your word impress upon us the incredible goodness of your creation that we might like the stars worship and obey that as you speak a hundred billion galaxies are born God if every burning star sings your praises so will I God if, if all of creation still obeys your voice so will we If all of creation all reveals your nature, so will I. God, if the stars were made to worship, so will I. If the mountains bow down in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. If everything exists to lift you high, so will I. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. If the rocks cry out in silence, so will I. If all the sum of all of our praises still fall shy, we'll sing it again a hundred billion times until you come back, whatever happens first. We pray this in the name of Jesus. God, does it need our gifts? The heavens and the